Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a reasonably fine spring morning, daffodils by the hedgerows, little leaves of green now emerging on the blackthorn and the hawthorn, and I'm with author, illustrator and our guide for today's short walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Back in Coniston, which is one of those areas that uh, has a great allure to me. I love this setting. We were chatting on our way here today, weren't we, Mark, about previous podcasts we've had here. Mm. Um, We've been here quite a few times, and the reason for that is there's this concentration around Coniston of important cultural figures, literary figures. We've spoken about uh, Ruskin before with Vicky Slow, a fantastic podcast that was. We've been down to Nibthwaite with um, Maria and John there farming down at Nibthwaite Grange. And Paddy Dillon. Paddy Dillon. Yes. Indeed, walking the Cumbria Way on the far bank. And we also walked up Black Crag with uh, Dr Penny Bradshaw talking about literature there. And we've circled around today's topic, but we've never explicitly covered it before. Who are we going to talk about today, Mark? We've got to talk about Arthur Ransom, who wrote the famous children's series Swallows and Amazons. Hugely popular books that are still being reprinted now had a critical role to play in the development of children's literature and particularly Lakeland literature. And this is it, isn't it? This is the spiritual home of those great adventure books. Obviously, the series goes to other places as well, but I mean, I think it's Coniston Water that we associate with the books. And we've got two big fans of Ransom with us today. Well, yes, indeed, we've got Paul Flint and Garant Lewis, who are devoted followers of the whole story and the books and have a great passion for this setting, which is fundamental to our story today. This has been one I've been looking forward to for a long time. Were you a, a Ransom fan? <laughs> no, indeed no. not. No, oh, no, no. no I, but for somebody... <laughs> yes, no, I'll, get, I'll get thinking of Black Mark. Uh, our guests won't be impressed, but never mind. OK, uh, I won't quiz you. I won't no, no. Well, if it helps, I was quite a fan, so... Uh, there you are, I, listeners. I will enjoy today. F- 50% uh, is not a bad order, is it, really, is it? Right, well, I can see the two gents standing there just down the drive with a fabulous view over Coniston Water. So let's go and say hello and talk ransom. Well, this is marvellous. I'm standing below Bank Ground, looking down on Coniston Water. Used to be called Thurston Mere, believe it or not. And I have an open view towards Coniston Old Man and How Crags, Wetherlam, the Udale Fells and uh, Home Fell. I'm in the company of Paul Flint and Geraint Lewis. I'd like to know a little bit about yourself. So, Paul, where do you come from? Well, I, uh, I live in Windermere now, but uh, I was brought up in North London. Uh, my parents were from Penrith in Cumbria. 
We always came back to the Lake District for holidays and indeed we stayed with my great uncle down in Haworthwaite who delivered milk to Arthur Ransom at the time and I can remember peering up Arthur Ransom's drive as a little boy trying to catch a glimpse of the great man <laughs> but I spent much of my youth exploring the Lake District and uh, the books had quite an impact on my, my upbringing. They gave me interests which have lasted throughout my life. Uh, I joined the Royal Navy um, as a young man and I think that was on the heels of uh, Ransom's writing and since then I've brought up my own two sons uh, very much in, in that sort of spirit as well and it was by doing that as I met uh, Geraint here who um, we both joined the Arthur Ransom Society and we started running camps for young children in this very spot in fact um, we had tents going across the field just here and we had boats on the lake and the two of us, uh, with our wives, uh, ran these adventures for several years. And then uh, eventually we formed the Arthur Ransom Trust, uh, which is a, a charity to promote Arthur Ransom and his writing. Your second name, Flint. Now, I associate this with Captain Flint. You're quite welcome to do that. Uh, we, we have got a dinghy called Captain Flint, which is probably no coincidence. And uh, I married a... Uh, an army officer, she was in the Royal Coral Transport. Uh, she was Captain Flint when I married her, so uh, <laughs> the, the, there's all sorts of links to the name Captain Flint, but of course the one we're thinking about here is Jim Turner's. Uh, he's a character in the Swallows and Amazons books, and he was called Captain Flint by the children. Oh, there we are. That rounds that narrative up very well. Now, uh, Geraint, where do you come from, and what's your broader connection with this setting? Well, hello, Mark. Yes, I'm, I'm Geraint, and uh, I was actually not born in Cumbria, or my family is not from Cumbria either. We're actually from South Wales, my family. I actually grew up, though, in Birmingham, uh, which has got very little to do with Ransom, probably one of the few places in Britain which has got no Ransom connections at all, except that it is the place where I first started reading Ransom's books. Would you like to give us a sort of an initial brief description of Arthur Ransom himself? Yes, OK. Um, he was born in the late Victorian period um, in Leeds, but from a very early age he was able to enjoy holidays at a place you've mentioned already, Nibthwaite, at the bottom end of Coniston Water, where he came with his father and mother and family. And for the first 13 years of his life, that was where he had his summers, and he developed his love for this area from that very early period of his life. He went on in late life to become a bohemian in London, with a passion for trying to write. He got distracted in various ways. He spent uh, a long period in Russia during the First World War and the Russian Revolution, where he was a political correspondent and a war reporter. But eventually he made his way back here in the 1920s. Um, and at the end of the 1920s, he was able to start writing the Solis and Amazons novels for which he became famous and which related to this area so strongly. Well, we're going to explore all of that at length during the course of this uh, podcast, which I'm really looking forward to. Now, where are we going, Paul? You've got a bit of an idea of our pedestrian perspective on this narrative. Well, we're going to start off where we're standing at the moment, at uh, Bankground Farm, where we're looking across towards Coniston Old Man. From there, we're going to walk up the lane. We're going to go... Fairly close to a house called Lane Head, which is where Ransom met the Collingwood family as a young man, and they had a great influence on his life. We're going to walk across the fields towards Brantwood, home of John Ruskin, 
Then we're going to cheat and catch a boat. No. Yes, we're going to catch, we hope, the gondola, which had an influence on Ransom's writing and is a great experience in its own right. And we're going to go across towards Coniston. Sheep are bleating, lambs are bleating as well. It's a lovely setting, this gardener in bank ground. I want to get to the earliest years of Ransom's life. Well, he was born in uh, Headingley in Leeds, where his father was uh, a professor of English and history at the Yorkshire College. But his father already had some Lakeland connections, and the family started coming across here for holidays. They enjoyed long holidays because he was in the academic world. So they would pack up a large trunk, which their cook had to sit on to close it, <laughs> uh, bring everything across. It went ahead by rail. They then followed by rail and uh, got picked up by horse and cart at uh, Greenodd Station. And they were brought up to Nipthwaite, which they established as a holiday place for them to, to stay for many years, up until, uh, really until his father's death when Ransom was age 13. And uh, he, with his brother and two sisters, would explore the hillsides behind pretty much in an unlimited way. His father fished, his uh, mother painted, and they had pretty much, from that point of view, an idyllic childhood. During that time, for example, they would go by rowing boat up to Peel Island, uh, which then featured later in... Ransom's writing of Swallows and Amazons and indeed much of the sort of things and memories that uh, Ransom had of his younger days as a boy whilst holiday in Nipthwaite do re-emerge in his writing of Swallows and Amazons. And did he ever climb a mountain as a youngster? Uh, he did or at least uh, his father actually carried him according to legend carried him up to the top of the old man when he was only a few months old was a sort of family right to get to the top of the old man of Coniston and later in life uh, Ransom carried a little stone he'd collected from the, the old man around with him all the time he was travelling around the world in Russia during the First World War and afterwards as a reminder of, of this location and of that mountain. And uh, as he got a little older he was educated more locally to here? Uh, yes, he uh, spent just over two years at uh, Windermere School not a happy time for him. He didn't enjoy himself there. He had very poor eyesight and nobody realised it at the time. So he struggled with reading uh, without glasses. He certainly struggled with sport and boxing, for instance, was compulsory. So he didn't stand much chance standing there being pummeled by other boys. He was so unhappy in the end he tried to run away. He got all the way over the Kirkston Pass on his own, only for the, one of the local coachmen to... Uh, meet him and realise that this boy running in the wrong direction, <laughs> looking rather cold and hungry and, and crying probably, was not in the right place, so he brought him back. Uh, Poor lad, he, he felt a fugitive yeah. and a, out of place. The good news though is that uh, whilst he was at Old College, in eight, early 1895, the lake froze over from end to end and that certainly is one of the inspirations for him writing Winter Holiday one of his books based in the Lake District. And of course he captured some great memories from that great freeze in his autobiography. He looked back 
quite longingly, I think, to his childhood. Although he had, uh, in some ways, an unhappy childhood with the, the early death of his father, he also had some great experiences. And, uh, for example, he talked about seeing oxen being roasted on the lake when it was frozen. He saw perch frozen into the ice. And all of these memories are recreated in his later writing. I believe his father died when he was only 13. Uh, yes, that's right. It actually stemmed from an accident that happened at Nibthwaite. His father was a very keen fisherman, um, and he went out fishing at night down the River Crake. And unfortunately, on one occasion, his father slipped in the dark, hurt his ankle. Tuberculosis got into the bones of his leg. He had to have his foot amputated, and then that didn't solve the problem. So progressively, surgeons were amputating more and more of his leg. And over a period of uh, several years, sadly, his health declined, and his father died when, when Arthur Ransom was 13. That brought the holidays at Nibthwaite to an end uh, at that point. It also happened at the time when Ransom himself was moving on to rugby school from Windermere College. He spent several years at rugby school. Um, some benefits there, some of the teachers actually understood his passion for writing, his interest in it, and encouraged him. They also discovered or worked out the problem he's having with his eyesight, so he was able to then start reading and taking part in activities more effectively. When he left rugby school, he was very aware, I think, that his father had, had died now. His family needed a head, uh, somebody to start earning money. And with his mother, he agreed that he'd go to the Yorkshire College, where his father used to teach, uh, to study chemistry. And this was likely to be a good course into a safe, secure, if not terribly exciting career, uh, in which he could earn a living. Unfortunately, in the first year he was ill, or fortunately, we should say, but unfortunately, as far as his mother was concerned, uh, Ransom's passion for art and for writing kind of overwhelmed his interest in chemistry. And within a year, he'd decided that he really couldn't basically hack chemistry and laboratories. Uh, he'd much rather go and try his hand at writing. And he managed to get his mother eventually to agree to his going down to London to become a publisher's office boy, where he would work for a fairly small amount of money initially, delivering parcels and things like that, and spending every penny he earned and every uh, minute he had spare on buying books and reading and practising writing. And that led him, really, into his bohemian period of his life. The death of his father was a seminal moment in Ransom's life, I think. Up until that point, he had experienced a very typical Victorian family. His father was, I think, perhaps uh, a little bit emotionally distant, had high expectations of Ransom, and Ransom's very fertile imagination and impulsive nature didn't sit easily with that always. One example of uh, his father's lack of empathy, I think, was when he dropped him over the side of a rowing boat near Nipthwaite to try and teach him to swim, which probably wasn't the most uh, <laughs> effective teaching method. Sink or swim. Sink or swim. It was literally that. When his father died, in his autobiography, he's quite ambivalent. He felt a great release from the pressure to try and be what his father wanted him to be, which was successful, etc., on the other hand, he, uh, he also recognised, as Grain said, the fact that he, as the, the first-born son, was also the person who there was pressure on now to become the, the, the head of the family. Well, we've left Ransom in London with his literary dreams and we'll head up to Lanehead.
actually coming up the bank here uh, makes me uh, ponder not only on the marvellous view, but what brought you both to the whole story of Ransom himself? Paul, could you give us a, a bit of flavour of your influence? Well, my mother was born in 1930, just really as uh, Ransom was embarking on his Swallows and Amazon series of books. Every Christmas uh, she would receive a new one to read as a young girl and she with friends established their own little group that they called the Swallows and they would go to Oldswater on their small bicycles and things ended up camping on the, near the edge of Oldswater and exploring the Oldswater fells. Now when I was born uh, in the late 50s she started reading Arthur Ransom's stories to me and my brother it got to the point where maybe I was aged about five or six where she said, I've got to go and make them early, you'd have to start reading them yourself. And that's how it all started. And indeed, I worked my way through the series with my brother. As we got older, we just copied the sort of things that they'd been doing. And I learned to sail. I climbed the mountains, sometimes by myself, sometimes with friends and family. Uh, so it was a, a complete mixture that was all based on ransom. It was your answer to Harry Potter. <laughs> and Garage, yourself? Uh, well, you're, you're quite right, actually, that in his time period, uh, really through to the 1970s, in many ways, the Swallows and Amazons were the Harry Potter of, of those generations. My experience was completely different to Paul's, really. I was grown up in Birmingham. I remember in the second year in junior school, uh, we had a reading class every week. Every child had to get a book from the school library and you just read to yourself for half an hour. And I remember in this second year, I was getting one book after another out of the library and trying to read them and just finding I couldn't make any progress with these books. They just weren't working for me. And I kept going back to the teacher um, and I kept saying to her, do you mind if I change my book? And after the third or fourth time, she was clearly getting a bit exasperated by this so, uh, and thinking this isn't working. Uh, so she said, yes, you can, but whatever you bring back this time, you're going to have to finish. So with a bit of trepidation, I went back to the school library. Swallowdale is the longest of the Ransom books. It's a very long book indeed for a child of eight to be reading uh, by themselves. But I found I opened it, I started reading it, and within a page or two, I was hooked. And, and it hooked me on the idea that John, the eldest boy, was sailing Swallow, describing how he sailed her and how he understood what he was doing. And something in that just twigged with me. Um, you you felt I, a part of that experience? Yes, I mean, even though at that point in my life I'd never sailed, never even thought about sailing, never thought about... Well, I didn't know anything about the Lake District, really, or anything of that nature at that time. So it was just uh, one of those happy kind of comings together. Was there anything, Paul, that really got to you about them? Yes, although probably uh, in the stories it's exaggerated in that I don't think even parents in those days let their children have a completely free reign and go and camp on an island um, largely unsupervised. It was the prospect of being able to do just that which was the appealing thing and to be a free agent and to enjoy going on the fells and creating your own adventures that really appealed to me. We've uh, come up to the cattle grid at the entrance to Bank Ground. There's some Jacob sheep in the field to my right. And uh, over to my left is a pair of white buildings, quite strikingly attractive buildings. I think they might be relevant, but we'll come to that. Um, Ransom was 19 and in London and had now decided that 
he wanted to be a writer. Paul. I think it was quite a, a brave, if not foolhardy, move by Ransom to go to London at that age, to live in digs, to just get to understand what was going on around him. But it was a very vibrant place, and it was at a time when writing was a thing from which you could make a living. There were so many penny magazines, literary reviews, and all sorts going on, which allowed a young aspiring writer at least a foothold, potentially, into the writing world. And it wasn't long before he started making friends, making uh, acquaintances who were writers. By doing so, he developed his own technique. I think Grant could probably add to that in terms of his bohemian background when he was down there. Yes, he very much got into the Bohemian scene in London. Um, he ended up writing a book called Bohemia in London, which was all about that sort of scene of sort of frenetic artistic uh, creativity, usually allied with quite a lot of alcohol and, and various other sort of uh, late-night parties. Um, but it's interesting that although he's enjoying himself in London, as soon as he got a holiday, he got his first week's holiday, he rushed straight here to Coniston. It was the first time he'd been to Coniston since the Nibfight holidays we mentioned had ended. He wanted to come right back. He caught the night express up uh, so that he wouldn't waste a minute uh, of his time. He went into Coniston. He went to stay at uh, what is now the Udell Hotel in the middle of Coniston for the week. And that was, again, one of these very fortuitous moments in his life, really, because the first day of his holiday, he decided he's going to try and write some poetry. And he went up the church beck, um, he went up into the Copper Mines Valley. He, he lay down in the middle of a stream to um, try and create his poetry and he was getting nowhere with it. And as he was doing this, an elderly gentleman came down the hillside carrying an easel and artist's equipment. He stopped and said, young man, are you alive? Uh, at which point Ransom jumped up and said, yes, I'm alive. And they introduced each other. And the older chap was William Gershon Collingwood who happened to live here at the two white houses, the two white buildings you just mentioned, next to the gateway at Bank Ground, a place called Lane Head. Collingwood was a disciple and secretary of John Ruskin, the sort of towering intellectual of Victorian society. Collingwood was his disciple. He was himself a very multi-talented man. He was an archaeologist, a painter, a writer himself, and... His entire family of daughters and wife were artists and sculptors. It's a very creative environment. Collingwood liked what he saw of Ransom at first meeting and invited him to come round to Lanehead for tea one afternoon. He had tea with the Collingwoods and immediately felt at home. In many ways, Collingwood uh, himself, WG, uh, seemed to be a replacement for Ransom's lost father and in many ways a much more sympathetic replacement. The next year, when Ransom had another week's holiday, he rushed back here again. And this time, he didn't stay in Coniston. He came and stayed at Lanehead. And really, that was the beginning of uh, the Collingwoods and Lanehead itself being sort of spiritual mentors for Ransom, creative mentors. Now, the two daughters, we've mentioned that Ransom was both romantic and rather impulsive. Now, he did proposed to them, not at the same time, but he did propose marriage to both of them at different times, and quite clearly was, I think, looking for a partner at that age, in his, his early 20s. And it was down in London that he met his future wife, uh, Ivy Walker, and proposed to her, and immediately thought, probably I shouldn't have done that. 
because she said yes. <laughs> Obviously a bad sign. It was a bad sign, and uh, they, they weren't well matched. They did have a, a daughter in, uh, I think it was 1910, called... Tabitha. Tabitha. Who was christened here in Coniston Church, as an aside. So, she was, yeah. yeah. He tried to make the marriage work. I suspect they both tried to make the marriage work. But she was definitely not bohemian in her nature. I think she had higher aspirations socially. And she had, I think, very little interest in his writing. So it wasn't a marriage that got off to a particularly good start. It was down in London, uh, when he was uh, early years being married to Ivy, that he wrote a biography of Oscar Wilde. Now that lit a, a blue touch paper because um, Oscar Wilde's lover, uh, Oscar Wilde had died by this stage, but uh, his former lover took Ransom to court uh, for libel. Ransom won his case, but even though he won his case, he found the whole experience of going to court and having to defend himself extremely gruelling. By contrast, Ivy, his wife, found it uh, quite exhilarating and enjoyed the notoriety of photographers and uh, people interviewing them. What it did do was... I think forced Ransom to reassess his position and what he was doing. And if anything, he wanted to escape. He wanted to run away from this situation. And so in 1913, on the pretext that he was going to study Russian folklore, he went to, to Russia to do just that. He also went there because uh, his wife would have found it very difficult to get a passport to get her there as well. <laughs> and that started a new phase in his life, which was learning Russian when he was over there, using uh, children's primer books to understand the language and then reading newspapers. War breaking out um, right across Europe was, if you like, a, a very cathartic experience for him because suddenly he was a war reporter and a correspondent and no longer a writer of things that he wanted to write about. That uh, experience of being a correspondent made his writing skills very effective because he became a very economical writer and that learning experience meant that uh, a lot of his writing in particular of the Swallows and Amazons books isn't flowery it's uh, it's quite direct and it leaves a lot to the imagination and it's very succinct and that's somehow uh, I think how he differed from earlier writers who were probably quite flowery in the way in which they express things. And uh, Garant, when he got into Russia, he, he actually started mixing with quite high society. His early period in Russia would have been uh, before uh, the revolution, but the main uh, interest in the longer term came after the revolutions when he was able to get to know a lot of the Bolshevik leadership, a man called Karl Radek, who was the Bolshevik propaganda chief. Through that, Ransom was also able to get to talk to Trotsky quite a lot, he met Trotsky's secretary, uh, Yevgenia Shalapina. They met and they hit it off over uh, boiling uh, potatoes in the Russian uh, Bolshevik headquarters, and he actually fell in love with Evgenia. We've got lots more to cover, but we've got to get the 1255 cruise, and we've got at least three quarters of a mile to walk! <laughs> In order to get to the gondola reasonably quickly, we've kept to the road, which has uh, been a delight. The sun has actually burst out now, which is marvellous. And we've come past Brantwood itself, which is 
the connection with Ruskin, we come down through the gardens to the jetty uh, with a lovely view of Coniston Old Man across the water. Now, we've got to the point in Ransom's life where he's decided to move to Cumbria more seriously and on a permanent basis. He doesn't actually move back here till 1924. A lot of the reason is that he'd fallen in love with Eugenia, but he was still married to Ivy, and she wasn't willing to give him a divorce. So it took a while, several years, for him to finally secure the divorce from Ivy. Uh, that happened in 1924. At that point, Ransom, who'd been living with Eugenia in the Baltic States, was able to rush to the local British consulate, uh, get married to Eugenia, and then set off back to Britain to, to live and they decided to settle in uh, the Lake District because Ransom was still working for the Manchester Guardian. He wanted somewhere which was close to the office, but not too close. And they chose a place called Low Ludderburn on the east side of uh, Windermere, where they found a little cottage with lovely views down across the Winster Valley. Good fishing territory and also convenient for sailing. Ransom carried on working for the Guardian for a number of years after that. Initially as a political correspondent, he did trips for them to Egypt, to China, back to Russia. He also suggested to uh, Ted Scott, his friend, the editor of the Guardian, uh, that he, the Guardian didn't do anything for anglers, for fishermen. So Ted Scott said, well, you better do something for anglers then. Uh, so Ransom began a fishing column, which ran, I think, to 430-odd articles about fishing, called Rod and Line, um, very successful. He eventually published 50 of them as a book called Rod and Line, which uh, remains in print to this day. He's been regarded as one of the top three or four Anglin writers of the 20th century. Eventually, uh, The Guardian, in the late 1920s, they decided they wanted Ransom to go to Berlin as their political correspondent in residence. Ransom thought about this, it meant a lot more money, it meant a secure career, secure finances. But his heart was no longer really in it. Sort of burnt himself out reporting on the First World War and the Russian Revolution. He didn't like politics. He didn't like tangling with it. He eventually decided, no, he didn't want to do that. Fortunately for him, at the same time, he'd got to know the Altunian family. The Altunians were actually Dora Collingwood, uh, William Gershon Collingwood's daughter's family. She had married Ernest Altunian, an Armenian doctor. Uh, they lived in Aleppo most of the time at the hospital, which uh, Ernest Altunian helped to run. They came back to Britain for a year's sabbatical in 1928, and they came and stayed at Bankround Farm, where we were earlier, the farm where we saw the Jacob sheep. Uh, it's got a wonderful tea room, bed and breakfast, and uh, holiday cottages, and all manner of good things happening there these days. They stayed there for a year uh, on sabbatical, right next door to Lanehead, so they could be close to the children's grandparents and Dora's parents. At that time, Ernest Altunian and Arthur Ransom bought two dinghies for the children to sail, called Swallow and Mavis. And these dinghies they put on Coniston, they spent the year sailing, and then in early 1929, the Altunians went back to Aleppo. And it was after that that Ransom, really, everything came together in his mind. He realised he didn't want to be a political journalist. He wanted to finally get back to writing fiction for children. And he finally had the idea, which I think had been germinating from his own childhood at Nipthwaite, but brought back into relief for him by his time spent with the Altunian children. Why didn't he write a book about summer holidays in the Lake District uh, with a set of children? And the Altunian children provided a pretty good 
template, at least an outline, for some of his characters. And that's how he came to write Swallows and Amazons. There are many enigmas in Ransom's life, and one that we haven't touched on, which I think probably just deserves at least a brief mention, is that in 1918 he was recruited by MI6 when he was in Stockholm and reported back regularly thereafter on what he saw happening in Russia. And he was one of the few people who had access to the Russian hierarchy. He was also one of the few reporters in Russia at the time as well. He was not, and there's absolutely no proof that this would be the case, a two-way agent in any way at all. Uh, He certainly had to find favour with uh, the Bolsheviks in order to be able to, to have access to the information that they had. But he had nothing to give them other than his personal opinions. And so it's not as if he could divulge secrets to to the Russians. It was a one-way street in the sense that he was able to send intelligence back to the UK. Well, we've got to the point now where he's written his first Swallows and Amazon book. We'll explore a bit further, we'll walk a little further and get to the jetty. Well, we've come down to the shore, close to the jetty, not quite to the jetty, and they've got this wonderful view right the way down the lake to Wildcat Island, Bell Island, and the hills to the west of the lake, and the wooded shore where the Cumbria Way tracks along, which we walked with Paddy Dillon a year ago, and the sun is lighting all over Collison Old Man, and uh, the gondola's getting ever so close now, so exciting times. This Swallows and Amazon stories, there there were a dozen in total, I believe, but what were the main themes, Paul? I think, in in a way, the main themes can be captured by the sort of people that he appealed to. On the one hand, you had Prince Charles, who is his favourite book, so it uh, appealed to people right at the top of the social hierarchy. Uh, Equally, it appealed enormously to Norman Willis, the TUC leader, who later became a uh, president of the Arthur Ransom Society. Now, Norman Willis said that uh, as a boy living in the back streets of London, he waited every time for a new book to come out, and he would go to the library, couldn't afford books, and read the latest Swallows and Amazons book. And it appealed to him because in his imagination, he could identify with the characters, he could imagine him doing what they were doing. It wasn't uh, something that stretched belief. And within the books, there are plenty of workmen-like people. You've got charcoal burners in the Lake District, hill farmers, boat builders. Uh, You've got uh, gillies in Scotland, in Great Northern, who were herding and looking after deer. Ransom had a great empathy with the working man. When he was young, he befriended gypsies and he befriended charcoal burners. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with his time in Russia also, um, seeing how the, uh, the people were treated, generally speaking, like underdogs in a lot of cases. And he wanted his writing to be very classless in a way. There had to be an element of class, there had to be an element of people able to afford leisure time to be able to take part in the adventures that they took part in. But there are children in the stories who are key to the stories who were from working class backgrounds. Uh, and so it was a classless society. It was also, I think, some of the first examples of 
almost not a genderless society, but one in which boys weren't predominant. It wasn't written for boys. This was an Amazon series. Neither was it written for girls. And that was very typical of earlier books um, in the 20th century, in the late 19th century. It was written for children. And girls play a very important role. They play leadership roles and inspirational roles in the books. And I think that's one of the reasons why it appeals, because it's about families doing things that other children could do themselves. And that's been partly their enduring nature, I think, over the years. And they, uh, they inspired Ellen MacArthur to sail and then sail around the world. They inspired because of their strong content on natural history, descriptions of birds, ponds, streams, lakes, fish. David Bellamy said that his interest in natural history dated back to reading the Arthur Ransom books. And so in many rather subtle ways, he, he's influenced a lot of influential people. Well, the gondola is getting quite close. The steam is uh, floating in little wafts westward, so there must be a bit of an easterly breeze at the moment. So we get on the jetty so it knows that there's somebody to get on, which is rather critical, otherwise we'll miss the boat. Well, we're underway. We're just going gently up the lake. There's a breeze, so we're gondola with the wind. What a view we've got from here, Paul Garan. Can you describe this association view? Well, first of all, we're on the steam-driven vessel gondola, which was built in 1859 and was well known to Arthur Ransom as a boy. He used to sit with his siblings above Nipthwaite on the side of the fell side there, amongst a group of rocks, which they christened as the gondola. Arthur Ransom, as a boy, um, was allowed by Captain Hamill to steer the vessel. And when they left um, uh, Nithwaite at the end of their summer holidays, Captain Hamill apparently typically uh, blew the whistle on the gondola in farewell to them uh, as they packed up and left. People have read Arthur Ransom's books, uh, his novels about the swallows and Amazons, um, will recall that... Captain Flint has a houseboat, and the houseboat really is based on two real vessels. One is the Esperance on Windermere, and the other one is Gondola that we're standing on at the moment. Both of these vessels were brought together in Ransom's mind to create Captain Flint's houseboat. The engine is dwindling, we're going to at a dock. Sun is dancing off the tiny, tiny little ripply waves of the lake. It's a busy place here. We're on the shingle shore beside the jetty with the gondola all set there, waiting for the next sailing. Uh, we're beside the outflow of Churchbeck, which comes down the Copper Mines Valley. Wasn't wrong about gondola with the wind because it's quite a strong breeze at the moment, so I'm a bit grasping my breath. I need to go back to these stories. The names associated with the ransom stories, uh, Tollers and Amazons, that we can get from this setting and the general area. 
As we travelled across the lake in Gondola, we were, we were effectively had a window on Ransom's world, a literal window. And I'm sure Geraint, looking out of the window as well, can see some of the places that were very relevant to Arthur Ransom's writing. From on board the gondola, or indeed here by the church back on the beach, we really can see a whole compass roads, if you like, all the way around the compass of places that are relevant to Ransom's stories. Looking across the lake, we have uh, Bankround Farm, the boathouses and lanehead where we started our walk, and then moving south along the east side, we go past Brantwood, John Ruskin's house, where we got onto gondola, Going down the wooded shoreline below that, about two miles away, you can't actually see the house, but there's the Heald uh, building Paul just mentioned. Ransom bought the Heald in 1940 and lived there for most of the Second World War. He had shooting rights in the, the woodland above the house, and up there there's a little stone woodman's hut, which he found whilst he was out hunting for food to supplement his rations, and he turned that into a place called the Dog's Home in his last Lakeland novel, The Picks and the Martyrs. Um, it's a place where the Picts hide away in the forest so they can't be found. Moving further on down, looking towards the bottom of the lake, we can't quite see Nibthwaite, it's too far away and, and beyond the narrows at the bottom of the lake, but we can see Peel Island, which is very much one of, one of the biggest inspirations for the Wildcat Island of the books with a special secret harbour at the bottom end in which you can hide your boats and get ashore. And then moving around to the west, we have right above us the old man of Coniston. And then moving on to the north, we can just see some of the, uh, the ridges and the, the hilltops which lead up towards Tilberthwaite, where he set his sixth novel, Pigeon Post, where they go hunting for gold up in the hills. And that's the novel that won the first Carnegie Medal for children's literature. If you ever see every year in the newspapers they announce the latest winner, they usually mention the first one was won by Arthur Ransom for Pigeon Post in 1936. Gosh, we've escaped some of this stiff breeze and follow the crowds which are mingling in this area and we'll head up into the village and see if we can find one or two further little uh, ingredients to the story. Walked a little further up uh, Churchbeck, coming into the edge of Coniston, and uh, we'll go back to the writer himself, Arthur Ransom. He's now living in the Winster Valley, not far from Windermere. Swallows and Amazon is published. What happens next, Geraint? Uh, well, uh, Swallows and Amazon itself was a fairly slow seller to begin with. It got a boost when uh, Queen Mary went into Bumpsus bookshop in Oxford and bought a copy and apparently paid for it. Ransom made a note that she actually paid in cash for this copy of Swords and Amazons. After that he, he had enough enthusiasm or enough kind of positive vibes about Swords and Amazons to try doing a sequel. So he wrote Swallowdale. And then his next book, Peter Duck, was actually very popular straight away and he knew then that he was on a winner. He could make a living out of writing these children's stories. He wrote another three whilst they were living in the Winster Valley. But Evgenia didn't particularly like the weather up here in Cumbria. Uh, despite coming from Russia, she felt it was cold and wet and miserable, and she'd much rather live down south. So they started, for the rest of their lives really, a sort of shuttle backwards and forwards of moving to the east coast, 
around Ipswich area or down to London, back to the lakes and then back again. He was in uh, East Anglia, in Essex, towards the end of the 1930s. Bombing at the start of the Second World War drove him back here to the Heald for the duration of the Second World War. Come 1945, the world changed so much that he, I think, realised he could no longer carry on writing stories set in the early 1930s because the world had moved on to some degree and he was a decade older. He felt a bit burnt out, I think, by that stage. So the series ended in 1947 with a book called Great Northern. Um, After that, he effectively went into retirement, persevered with his ill health uh, for another 20, 22 years, eventually living uh, at a place called Hilltop, down uh, at the bottom of the Rusland Valley. He died in 1967, and he's buried at St Paul's Church in Rusland. Ill health was something of an issue for him throughout his life, Paul. Indeed it was, sadly, and uh, I'm sure it constrained him from doing quite a few things that he would have liked to have done. And I think it all started when he was a young man living in London, and the only way he could afford at that stage to uh, read and write was to live on a minimum of food. And he describes how he would buy a fish and uh, cook it in a kettle and try and make it last as long as possible. And ever since then, he blamed his poor health, his stomach ulcers were the things that dogged him most severely on that frugality during his early years and possibly also uh, exacerbated whilst he was in Russia as well. He was active until uh, around about the mid-1960s and then he became bedbound and in 1965 uh, was taken down to uh, the hospital at Cheadle near Manchester where he lived for about a further 18 months before dying. So certainly uh, ill health was a problem for him. Uh, But on the other hand, he was uh, also extremely active, moved house a lot. Reasons for doing that, I think he was impulsive, would get itchy feet to do things, I think, and it was partly a self-inflicted impulsion to to move house. They never found a place where they were entirely happy. It was a nomadic lifestyle in many ways, which in a way mirrored his own youth and time as a young man as well. Never really settled down. Rather like Beatrice Potter, he was successful in his lifetime, making actual genuine money, uh, Garant. Uh, well, yes, he's making money, uh, certainly enough to commission and build a series of yachts, bespoke yachts, when that requires quite a lot of money, even in those days, um, and the money to actually move house regularly. But I think possibly, as much as anything in his own lifetime, there were the, the fruits of recognition for what he'd achieved. As I mentioned on the beach, that... He received the first Carnegie Medal for children's literature. He was uh, made an MA by Durham University, um, a Doctor of Letters by Leeds University, which is not bad for somebody who chucked the place in his first year and walked away. And he uh, was made CBE in uh, 1952. He certainly saw the fruits of recognition for what he'd achieved as a children's author, and indeed for his earlier work in uh, political journalism. Grant, you've been to the grave. Can you describe it? It's a beautiful spot, very, very peaceful spot, what you might call a typical rural church graveyard, and his his grave is in one corner underneath the boughs of an oak tree. You can stand there, certainly in this graveyard, and you just sense the, the wildlife all around you, the peace of the area. And interestingly as well, Rusland, um, it's sort of halfway between Coniston and Windermere, the two lakes that he brought together as the lake, and 
Also, I mean, Ruslan, the, the name not dissimilar to Rusland with his Russian connections. So quite an appropriate spot for him to be. He's buried there with, with Evgenia. Such a wonderful place to come through, Coniston, on a sunny day like it is today. We've come through the heart of the village, past the delightful parish church, with its remarkable Ruskin grave, which we have been to before. And we've come down a little lane beyond that to a detached portion of the graveyard, which is full of slate gravestones. And we've come to one particular spot. Paul, there are three gravestones in front of us. There is significance in them. Perhaps you can describe them to me. Yes, uh, what we've got here are the graves of two of the children, two of the Altunian children. Uh, we talked uh, earlier on in our walk about them coming back from Aleppo as a family and uh, staying at Bankground Farm, just below where the parents lived, Ernest and Dora Altunian. Now here we've got... Taki Altunian, who married to become Stevens, so Taki Stevens. Uh, she was the oldest Altunian child, and in a way corresponded sequentially to John, John Walker in uh, Swallows and Amazons. We've also got the grave here of Titty. Titty was a nickname. Uh, she was really called Nora Mavis. Titty was because as a child she was named Titty after Titty Mouse and Tatty Mouse, uh, a children's story of the period. Both of those are, are relevant in the sense that they represent children who helped to inspire Arthur Ransom to write his stories. It's been rather special to see where these rather significant people in the overall story rest. Is there a legacy, Geraint, that you can actually give us for Arthur Ransom? For his stories, certainly for the books, um, they've been adapted several times for film, um, initially in the 1960s by the BBC. In 1974, there's a much-loved uh, movie version. A new movie was made in 2016, which we have seen evidence of bringing people to discover Ransom's works for themselves and uh, maybe introducing him to a new generation of readers. There's also been a very successful musical, uh, which was produced initially in Bristol, about 10 years ago and has toured since then and been uh, revived at a number of theatres around the country uh, very successfully over the years. Translations, it's quite interesting that uh, his books have worked into many parts of the world you wouldn't expect. They were very successful in Czechoslovakia from the 1930s and remain so to this day with nearly all the books still in print or modern translations in the last few years uh, the books have been translated into Chinese, uh, Vietnamese, Thai, uh, Arabic. So perhaps some parts of the world where you wouldn't expect children's stories necessarily from England in the 1930s to be finding new readership. A lot of the themes are timeless. They are themes of how children get on with each other, how they grow up, how they experience life, how they indulge in imaginative play. Maybe in modern society we... We've lost some of that because we've, we've moved from the having to entertain yourselves and uh, educate yourselves to a large degree as children to maybe being spoon-fed a bit more through technology. And uh, Ransom's stories provide uh, good, good role models and good uh, examples of children in often quite difficult circumstances discovering how to do that. 
Geraint mentioned there that um, it was surprising that the books have been translated, for example, into uh, Chinese and Arabic. Uh, it's probably also surprising that the first literary club based on Arthur Ransom was Japanese and not British. That was followed closely by the Arthur Ransom Society, which is a group of enthusiasts who um, do ransom-related things in different regions around the country. Uh, there's the Nancy Blackett Trust, which has preserved his favourite sailing yacht, and it operates down on the River Allwell near Pin Mill. And, of course, we've got our own charity, which we've mentioned, which is the Arthur Ansem Trust. It might be a good point to mention that the Arthur Ansem Trust is working in conjunction with Brantwood at the moment to put on a summer exhibition of the artwork of overseas artists who've illustrated Ransom's books using their own illustrations. And that will happen from mid-June to mid-August of this year. Right, just to close the podcast, because I think we uh, have got a, a lovely summation here of the Arthur Ransom story, uh, we've given our two guests a little bit of homework. I'd like to know from each of you, which was your favourite book? And was there a, a special passage in there? And I'll ask this to Paul to start with. It's rather a cruel thing to ask you to choose your favourite book because you immediately diminish the others. And uh, had I been given completely free reign, I think I might have chosen We Didn't Mean to Go to Sea. However, I've limited my choice to uh, the Lake District because that's where we are at the moment. Um, and I've chosen Pigeon Post, and it's definitely worth readers exploring well beyond... Swallows and Amazons, the first book, because the subsequent books, his writing develops, his style develops, and the storylines are potentially more interesting even than the original book. So this was his sixth novel. It contains an attractive group of things for me. There's humour. A lot of it has to do with an armadillo. You've got to read why uh, <laughs> to find out. There's science, prospecting for gold and testing all samples. Man's impact on the environment. There's a fell fire caused by thoughtless tourists. That sounds very up-to-date. There's communications with homing pigeons and there's vignettes of wildlife and local people. It's almost a case of what's not to like when it comes to it. I've chosen a paragraph that relates to Ransom's acute observations of wildlife and the sympathetic approach that he took to writing about, things of that nature. So this is taken from one of the final pages of Pigeon Post. Titty slipped off in the dusk. The bramble thicket had been saved from the fire. But the little hedge pig, she thought, might have died from fright with all that smoke and the roaring of the flames and the trampling of the firefighters. Something stirred by the well. She crept nearer. It was something small, thin, with a curved back. A weasel. It drank lifted its little snake-like head, sniffed, and was gone. But she wondered whether the coming of the weasel would frighten the hedge pig away. Behind her, she could see the red glow of the campfire in the trees, and she could hear Mrs Blackett's voice saying how thankful she was that everybody was all right, and how awful it would have been if someone had got burnt. Would the talking keep the hedge pig away? And then she heard the stirring of dry leaves away under the brambles, she heard a sniff, a grunt, a sneeze. Then, in the dim light, she saw it. With steady, lumbering trot, it was making for the well. She watched a little dark lump work itself down the steps 
It was drinking. The water got into its nose and she heard a small impatient snuffle. It climbed out again and trotted off. She lost sight of it in the shadows, but she had seen enough and slipped back to the camp. Okay, Garad, what's your choice? I've also chosen one of the books from the Lake District. Uh, it is actually probably my favourite, I think, consistently over the years. One of the reasons is, is that it's a book called Winter Holiday uh, to do with, uh, well, winter time and to do with the great frost, really, that we spoke about earlier. Ransom experienced this great frost in 1895. He knew Windermere frozen from end to end. He had a month off school lessons uh, whilst they just went down to the lake every day to skate and enjoy the exceptional weather and exceptional experience. And that stayed with him, gave him this book 30 years later. When I first read it, I'd, I'd always had a, a hankering for snow, uh, enjoyment of snow. Um, never saw much of it in Birmingham. It was always uh, a bit grimy and miserable. So the idea of a lake frozen from end to end with a, a month's holiday to be on the lake and to enjoy the snow fells uh, was just sort of magical in many ways. Uh, the gist of the story is that they plan a trip to the North Pole. Obviously not the real North Pole, but they invent a North Pole and they're going to hold an Arctic expedition to go to the North Pole. Uh, the situation is that some of the children are out at night on the lake with their skates and a toboggan. Who, said Roger, when they were halfway between the island and the shore. Who? He said no more, and there was no need. Everybody knew what he meant. Cold and loneliness and something more. Out there, on that enormous sheet of ice, with no other living thing in sight, they all understood that owlish cry. The lantern flickered and swung before them as Susan steadily went on her way. They could see each other only dimly in the dark, ghosts looking at ghosts. In that tremendous silence, there was no noise but that of their own skates and the sledge runners. Well, there you are. You've got a bit of a flavour of the magic. And there are... How many books we can look forward to? Uh, there are 12, 12, there are. all in print, all available on audiobooks. Well, Paul, Garant, you've given us the, the magic of a story that will unfold for new generations. I'm looking forward to reminding my own grandchildren, and perhaps myself, of the pleasure and the adventure hidden away in the wonderful writing of Arthur Ransom. journey's end and the weather has been incredibly kind to us i think it was meant to rain actually it's beautifully sunny daffodils all around the graveyard here mark peace and quiet in the middle of coniston it's rather lovely this oh it is, isn't it lovely you've got the udale fells above us yeah. coniston old man and the scrow is uh, that little hill up there which right. means the 
confused and um, messy place, but it isn't messy at all. It's a wonderful environment up there. I'm longing to get back on one of those high fells. I plan to go up there in a week or so's time. Anyway, it's been a wonderful expedition. Yes, it uh, has. Oh, wow. You the need adventure. to read the books now. Oh, that's right. As I said, I'll introduce my grandsons to them. <laughs> now, we've got some, uh, a quick note, actually, here from our last guest, Stan. If you remember, we walked with Stan uh, along the Carlisle Settle line, um, and he wanted to just put the record straight about one thing. So, in the interest of accuracy, never like Country Stride to let her falsehood continue, he wrote to us and said, Long Meg's rival was not Colehen, as I said, it was Michael Scott. Okay, who Didn't was. Know that. Yeah, who was actually an earlier monarch. Didn't sound like it, but yeah, I believe you, Stan. There we go. He's a wise account. Stan wanted to put the record straight. Usual housekeeping. This is episode number, well, it might be 79, but it might be 80. It varies. It does vary. <laughs> um, if you want to listen to all previous episodes, they are at www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, at Countrystride 1 on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to support us, you can do it in one of three ways. You can recommend us to your friends and family. They will appreciate it, particularly if they like the Lake District. Secondly, you can buy any number of our walking guidebooks at www.countrystride.co.uk. And thirdly, you can donate to us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. So, again, just go to our website. And we have a few people to thank today. Adam Bazir, Mike Killingly, Ollie Brown, and Strawn McGolvery. Thank you to all of you. It really does help us to continue doing this, particularly with the price of petrol increasing. And diesel. And diesel, yes. In fact, we just come through the village and the price came down 10 pence in front of our very eyes. They were changing the sign and <laughs> some people were lucky and some people weren't so lucky on the forecourt at that exact moment. Right, what are we doing next, Mark? I don't think we know for sure, but Eric Robson, we would like to collar. We would indeed. And if it's a horrible to... wet day, we'll go down to Wasdale. <laughs> and we're going to Kirby Lonsdale. Oh, and yes. Actually, I've got a great contact through today for somebody to talk about Sedba. Long the book Dean, town. The book town. But for now, from a, a sunny Coniston on a beautiful spring day and with very happy memories of holidays in the Lake District on Coniston Water, we're saying goodbye for now. <laughs>